And to me, democracies like ours, whether it's the Americans or the Israelis, we are strengthened, not weakened, when we apply the uh, standards and values of our country to the way we conduct ourselves in military conflicts. Because when we do that, we show our values. And so I think it is equally important how Israel conducts themselves uh, in this war. But they do have a right to do that. And it's incredibly uh, saddening to me uh, to see, obviously, what's happening, but also to see these stories that are coming back from these hostages and also to see the, the civilian toll in Gaza. And I hope that we can find a way forward soon that brings the conflict to an end and leave, leave Hamas no longer in power. You are not calling for a ceasefire no, at this time? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Yes, folks. Left Reckoning 147 is Guatemala the next coup victim. My name is David Griscom, and I'm broadcasting to y'all live from the great state of Texas. Just me this week. Uh, Matt is celebrating his birthday. I hope all of y'all have uh, taken the time to uh, let him know that we are thinking of him and care about him. I think that he's probably having a very good time uh, right now. As Sam Cedar said, catching up on some video games. Um, but we still got a good program for y'all. Uh, got some really fun stuff. In just a moment, uh, we are going to be joined um, by Vaclav Masic Sanchez, um, who is a uh, Latin Americanist, um, a Guatemalan. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, this slow coup that is happening in Guatemala. It's a really, really important story. We want to make sure that we were highlighting it um, on Left Reckoning. Uh, there's a lot going on all over the country and all over the world. Uh, but this is something that is absolutely crucial that we have uh, eyes on, that people are making sure that they're keeping in contact with the representatives, uh, talking about what's going on, understanding that. So more in-depth conversation of that in just a moment. But before we get uh, to that, I wanted to take a moment um, to talk about some <laughs> exciting news, um, some disappointing news, and then take a quick visit with one of the main ghouls of national Texas politics. So if you're watching that opening segment there and you were curious who that fellow was, that is Colin Allred, who is, there's still primary, <laughs> stone election that's supposed to be happening, uh, but seems very, very much uh, likely to become uh, the Democratic Party's uh, candidate for United States Senate to take on, um, uh, to take on and, uh, and try to flip the state of Texas. Now, I'm not particularly impressed with Allred in general, I have to say. Um, he's sort of shown himself to be a kind of empty suit politician, um, a kind of uh, neutral politician in the general sense of him sort of not really representing, you know, serious social movements or anything like that. Uh, just sort of an avatar of Democratic Party politics, both nationally and right here in the state of Texas. There's no doubt about it that this guy is going to raise uh, some money, um, but I highly doubt uh, that this is going to be somebody who's able to put up a serious challenge to the Democratic Party to win the Senate seat here in Texas in the upcoming election. Um, now, I bring all that up just to note why his statement um, was so frustrating. Uh, just there, we'll play it again in just a second. Um, because the Texas State Democratic Party over the week, over last week, actually uh, endorsed a ceasefire proposal. And I'll just pull this up right fast for y'all. Um, I believe Texas was the first uh, Democratic Party in the country uh, to have a state Democratic Party calling for a ceasefire. 
And look, there's a lot of ambivalence here. There's a lot of things that, you know, we can sort of quibble with 100%. And as people know, this is not a program where we're just sitting around and boosting the Democratic Party. Um, but what this is showing is that a tremendous amount of the grassroots organizing and work that has been done by people, y'all included, um, over uh, the fight against the, the genocide in Gaza, um, is making a difference. And even politicians, even in unreflective bodies, are starting to uh, respond to some extent. And uh, this this news right here is is a part of that. The Texas State Democratic Party Executive Committee unanimously passes Israeli-Palestinian resolution calls for humanitarian ceasefire and re release of hostages. Now, of course, this statement's going to have all of the kind of hallmarks of the you know um, <laughs> both sidesism that is sort of typical of most political parties and certainly of the Democratic Party. Uh, but no doubt about it, having the Democratic Party come out and, and call uh, for a, a, a ceasefire is significant, right? We would want to be stronger. We'd want to have other things in there. Uh, but no doubt about it that this call for ceasefire is um, significant. And most importantly, and this is the thing that I think a lot of people miss um, on, on our side when we talk about these things. This is not, oh, my God, I've now been bamboozled and tricked by this party and this organization. and I'm now a massive supporter of it. No, this is the direct result of on the ground organizing, of people showing up in the march like we had in Austin just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, where thousands of people were in the street. This is a response to that. So when you start to see the people in power and the people of influence start to buckle, you should take some confidence in the strength and, and, the, and the victories that you've been achieving. Is it enough? No. Is this going to answer our problems? Certainly not. But this is one of those moments where you can say, hey, look, something is moving right now because of the work that people have been doing. Um, on top of this, obviously, we all know about the UAW coming out with a very strong uh, support of, of a ceasefire and the end to the genocide in Gaza, um, along with other local unions here in Austin, all across the state as well. Um, there's been a significant role played by labor, played by a lot of uh, significant social and uh, community organizations across the state and across the country. This is something that takes some, you know, a moment to be able to celebrate. And then we got somebody like Colin Allred, um, somebody who is trying, um, you know, who, again, it seems like the state the Democratic Party is trying to sort of push him to be the, the nominee for the, for the Texas Senate, Senate candidate in the state of Texas, um, and him giving the same kind of wishy watching answer. And I'm just going to play it again uh, for you all, because I think there's a couple things in here that are worth taking a moment to know. The Texas Democratic Party just recently passed a, unanimously a call for a ceasefire in mm -hmm. the war between Israel and Hamas. Do you agree? Yeah, I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and this is, I think this is, you know, a time for you know mature and solid leadership. And, and to me, uh, what we have to do in terms of this conflict is continue to try and get uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza to try and protect civilians as much as possible. But understanding that this is a war of choice by Hamas, they chose this war. They are still holding over 200 hostages right now. They could release those hostages. They could lay down their arms. And so Israel has every right to defend itself, but they have to do that within the context of the laws of war. And to me, democracies like ours, whether it's the Americans or the Israelis, we are strengthened, not weakened, when we apply the uh, standards and values of our country to the way we conduct ourselves in military conflicts. Because when we do that, we show our values. And so I think it is equally important how Israel conducts themselves uh, in this war. But they do have a right to do that. And it's incredibly uh, saddening to me uh, to see, obviously, what's happening, but also to see these stories that are coming back from these hostages and also to see the, the civilian toll in Gaza. And I hope that we can find a way forward soon 
that brings the conflict to an end and leave, leaves Hamas no longer in power. You are not calling for a ceasefire no, at this time? No, I'm not. We'll note a couple things there. Uh, one, one thing that is very notable about that clip is both times when Colin Allred um, says that he's not going to uh, take on, like it's the thing about the reason that like having the Democratic, uh, the state Democratic Party said that they endorse a ceasefire. And again, with all the caveats, all of the kind of, you know, uh, opportunities for people to, in, in, in the Democratic Party to sort of say, oh, look, this is what we were always supporting from the get-go, right? You know, these kind of half measures and stuff. It's all in there, right? There's plenty of um, off-ramps for people who don't want to get in too much trouble uh, with the pro-Israel mass murder uh, lobby. Now, um, so like the opportunity is 100% there for somebody like Allred to say, hey, I support what the what the state Democratic Party has said, um, you know, and I think that, you know, Hamas is bad, blah, 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 right? all the kind of stuff that they're going to say. Um, but instead, he doesn't. But it, what's really notable about that is in both times that he is asked directly whether or not he supports what the Texas Democratic Party has said, that it supports, he says no, but he says it real quiet. And then when I was putting together the intro clip, you know, I had to boost the audio a little bit to make sure that people could hear very clearly that he was saying no, because he sort of says it under his breath. Again, no praise to this guy, um, but it does show that even he's a little bit afraid of, of, of saying something uh, that you might think um, he would be able to just say outright. Now... So, you know, I, th I think that what the lessons here is that the social movements are working. They're putting pressure on people. And two, uh, that the Democratic Party is showing time and time again, even when you start to see movement within the party, a lot of the people who are elected to represent it, a lot of the people who have influence and power within it, um, aren't even interested in even listening uh, to their own, uh, you know, Democratic Party uh, constituents. I bring all this up um, to take a visit and look at uh, another person who is running um, for the Texas Senate, and that is Ted Cruz, um, who was on Counterpoints uh, with Ryan Grimm, and I'm forgetting the other person's name, excuse me. Um, and I just wanted to bring this up to say, look, this is again an opportunity for the Democratic Party uh, in the state to maybe distinguish itself um, from the bloodthirsty Republican Party, as we saw right there from Allred. Um, no. I mean, what we get from Allred <laughs> is effectively the same thing as what Ted Cruz, if you watch this entire uh, video, and I highly suggest it, it's called Ted Cruz Pressed on Israel-Hamas War. Ted Cruz is a little bit bolder, a little bit more celebratory of the violence of, of Israel. Um, you know, but he effectively says the same thing as, as Allred does, right? What does Allred say? Allred says, oh, well, what separates, you know, what the United States and what Israel can do is show how great democracies they are. Um, by trying to use precision strikes instead of all-out bombing. Now, let's not let any of them get away with that for a second. Israel is leveling Gaza as we speak. Israel has been leveling northern Gaza and is now uh, was bombing southern Gaza from the get-go, um, but is now increasing their military operations, their bombing campaign in southern Gaza, right? Um, again, 3 million people live there. This whole idea that they're using precision strikes is a ludicrous lie that anyone with eyes or brain can see past. Um, but yet these people continue to utter this nonsense. And Ted Cruz, just like Allred, right, different language sometimes, different things that they like to accentuate and focus on, um, is sort of saying the same thing. Israel's a good democracy. They're super great at persistent strikes. Um, and Allred is saying, oh, democracies, you know, they, choose, they really show themselves in the way that they bomb civilians, right? Um, you know, truly ludicrous stuff. But anyways... The Democratic Party here, if Allred is going to be the candidate, which again, it looks like the money and power sort of lining up behind him to do so. 
um, to, to push him into that position. Uh, when it comes to, to Gaza, when it comes to fighting against the genocide, let's see how much choice uh, we get there. We saw what Colin Allred has to say. Let's listen to Ted Cruz as he gets pressed a little bit uh, by Ryan Grimm here. And your mother is proud of you for doing it. And I know Emily wants to get a question, but I just, on, on this point real briefly, whenever we've had critics of Israel on, we've kind of insisted that they condemn that because while, while we, we disagree uh, with a lot on the show, we also try to find kind of moral common ground. And I, we, can, we can all agree that those types of atrocities need to be fully condemned. And with that in mind, I'm going to read to you a couple of things that the, we've been hearing from the Israeli government. Uh, we've, we've had uh, Defense Minister uh, Gallant we will eliminate everything, an IDF spokesperson. Our focus is on damage, not on precision. Uh, Agriculture Minister Avi Dichter, we are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba. Gaza Nakba 2023, that's how it'll end. Israeli Heritage Minister Amahai Elihu said a nuclear bomb is, quote, one of the possibilities. Uh, Finance Minister Bezal Smotrich, we need sterile zones in the West Bank. Uh, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, it's an entire nation out there that is responsible. This rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime. Another former Knesset member, there is one and only solution, which is to completely destroy Gaza before invading it. I mean destruction like what happened in Dresden and Hiroshima without nuclear weapons. Would you join us in condemning that? as well. So I, I condemn nothing that the Israeli government is doing. I, I stand <laughs> with the people Christ. of Israel. And let me explain. There is a qualitative difference. The Israeli government does not target civilians. They target military targets. The Israeli government Why are they has so stated, bad at their targeting then if they're killing so, so, so many so civilians? So they're actually not. They, they are, so then they are targeting. No, they're exceptionally good at. So, so for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had stories all over the world that Israel bombed a hospital in, in, in Gaza and killed 500 Palestinians. Now, it turns out that was a blatant lie. It was Hamas it's, propaganda. It's, and, and if you break down, literally every element of the story was a lie. So number one, Israel doesn't target hospitals. Israel why why used, have so many hospitals been targeted? Because they haven't. Because it's false. Because they haven't. And, you know, people can watch the whole clip. It's right there for you all to watch it later. Um, not just going to double double play Cruz's uh, kind of boring response there, because what Cruz does, as he does throughout the interview, is Ryan Grimm will ask him a decent question, um, you know, start trying to point out the the devastation that Israel is causing in Gaza, and Ted Cruz just basically goes back to talk about October 7th, um, or to talk about the controversy um, around that one hospital bombing, and then just to flat out deny that hospitals have been bombed across Gaza, right? Just straight up, factually incorrect, dangerous lies uh, from Ted Cruz. Very notably, he says there, um, I do not condemn anything that Israel is doing, uh, which again is even like a hardline stance compared to even some people in the Israeli government. Um, I mean, Ted Cruz and, and most American politicians have exposed themselves to be complete psychopaths um, and, and bloodthirsty characters. And look, when you have somebody like Ted Cruz, it should be a slam dunk. Uh, to sound a little bit um, more um, humane uh, than him. And, you know, Colin might try to pursue that in sense of demeanor. Um, but we get very, 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 very little of substance from him, even when he has an opportunity sort of handed to him uh, by the state Democratic Party of Texas. People wonder sometimes why Democrats struggle in the places that they do. At a certain point, you can talk about how dangerous the right is all you want. 
But if you can't make a clear distinction between what you think about the world and what somebody like Ted fucking Cruz thinks, hmm, doesn't look too good for you, Pebble. Well, on that, um, we're going to jump over uh, to the interview in just one second. I got a couple quick housekeeping things for y'all. Immediately after our conversation on Guatemala, I'm going to be jumping over the post game, and we're trying something new tonight. Um, in the post game, we are going to have live call-ins. Usually, we do voicemails. I've set up a system where we're going to be able to chat a little bit. We're going to do them one by one so people can get in line and we'll be able to hang out, talk a little bit. Uh, we also have some clips and things like that. You get access to that patreon.com slash reckoning. People are audio patrons. You will see there is a link um, to the chat room so that you can join it in Discord. I will add everybody again so they can get access to that. So if you want to come by and chat with us after this interview, it should be done in about 45 minutes to an hour. Please do that. I'd love to hear from you all. People know Matt's not here because he's celebrating his birthday. Figured it might be a good time for us all to sort of catch up and chat and hang out in the post game. So again, access that patreon.com slash left reckoning. While I'm at it in the pitch section, don't forget that we have our merch up for left reckoning. You can find that at the leftreckoning.com slash store. If you want to get that stuff before Christmas, um, you need to order it before uh, the 7th. Uh, we can try to see if we can get things out, but I just can't guarantee after that that you'll be able to get it. Um, we have our new fence cutter sweatshirt. Oh, look at that good-looking guy there. We've got our Left Reckoning cap, um, our Great Plains t-shirt, and our Big Tex tank. That really helps us continue to do the show. You can get access at leftreckoning.com slash store. And we're going to be doing more on this in the near future, but if you missed it, I have a piece out in Jacobin that I've been working on for a really, really long time that I think really captures the ethos of Left Reckoning. Um, it's called When Black and White Tenant Farmers Join Together to Take on the Plantation South. And it's the history of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, uh, which was one of the first, if not the first, um, interracial unions in the United States of America. And they organized among some of the poorest and most disenfranchised people in the country, tenant farmers um, who were struggling under the vestiges of the old plantation system in the South. They put together an impressive and powerful movement. They took on the KKK. They took on the police. They took on the plantation bosses. And they even had to take on the FDR administration and Henry Wallace, uh, somebody who in this story is very much a villain. Uh, despite some of his uh, progressive gloss uh, that he's picked up in, in, in the past few years. Um, check that story out. I'm sure I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, appearances on other people's shows to talk about it. I think we might even do a segment on this in the near future because there's a lot of really incredible lessons that we can take from the history today. So check that piece out if you haven't seen it in Jacobin. Um, but folks, yeah, come over, hang out with us in the post game immediately after uh, this interview. Uh, but without further ado, um, we're going to take a deep look into what's going on in Guatemala. See you on the other side. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me is David Griscom. Hello, David. How's it going, brother? It's going well. And joining us now is Vaclav Masik Sanchez. He's a Guatemalan Latin Americanist and sociologist uh, here to who I've been following at underscore Vaclav Masik on Twitter. Uh, as Bernardo Arevalo, the president-elect, uh, sort of deals with some uh, obstacles uh, toward uh, getting to the presidency. Uh, Vaclav, thanks so much for being here, first of all. No, thanks, Matt, David, big fan of the show and very happy to be here. Uh, we're, we're really pleased to have you. Now, who is Bernardo Arevalo for, uh, for folks who uh, haven't been following along? Yeah, Bernardo Arevalo de Leon has been a a Congress member, a Semillas leader, a Semillas the, the party, uh, since two, 2020. Uh, 
Bernardo is also the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president, Juan José Arevalo Bermejo, uh, who is remembered for being, you know, popularly elected uh, after the 1944 revolution in Guatemala, who deposed uh, a military dictatorship that, with very fascist tendencies. Bernardo was born in exile in Uruguay after his father and the rest of the revolutionary junta had to flee the country following the U.S.-backed coup d'etat in 1954. We might remember this uh, during the Eisenhower administration against Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, a lot of psychological warfare, sort of the training ground for the Bay of Pigs. Um, and President-elect Arevalo, um, who is 64 years old, is a trained sociologist, which I really like because I am also a sociologist. He's a, a doctor in philosophy and social anthropology. And I kind of see him as a structural functionalist in the vein of like Max Weber and Robert K. Merton. Um, so he's concerned with capitalism, but he's hopeful that competition can solve society's problems by promoting stability. Um, Arevalo de Leon was also an ambassador uh, of Guatemala to Spain between 1995 and 1996. He was a vice minister of foreign affairs in 1994. And between 1984 and 1988, he was a prime secretary and consul to the Guatemalan embassy in Israel. So as we can see, he's, he has uh, a long trajectory in public administration. And he's one of the first guys to ever make it to the presidency with a career, not with clientelistic practices or through nepotism. So this is kind of a breath of fresh air for us in Guatemalan politics. Yeah, I mean, um, could you talk a little bit, um, just for folks who, who may have not been following as closely, a, a little bit about the campaign and what was being uh, promised? Because, um, you know, he sort of uh, went under the radar of, of polling for a while um, and was able to put together a pretty impressive coalition to end up winning the election. Yeah, um, Bernardo Arevalo was actually elected back in August uh, of this year, uh, and he led a group of idealistic young people who dreamed up an anti-corruption political party while they were still college students. This is sort of the core of the Movimiento Semilla political party. Um, the ruling elite in Guatemala had pushed nearly every opposition candidate off the ballot using this legal trickery. Uh, but they left Arevalo on the ballot because they were polling ter terribly, as uh, David mentioned. Um, so he surprised everyone. And, and he won by 21 points on the second round. And since then, the Attorney General of Guatemala, which I'll go into detail a little bit later on, has tried to stop him from taking office. Um, they claimed there was electoral fraud. Then they raided the offices and suspended his party. And even after the elections had been certified, they ransacked the Electoral Commission. Um, so Movimiento Semillas uh, and Bernardo Arevalo's landslide victory speaks to a question of global importance. You know, um, how can democratic oppositions win free but unfair elections? Uh, one answer, uh, perhaps not very satisfying, is that it's almost by accident. Uh, when authoritarian mm. tactics unwittingly backfire, um, uh, a democratic movement is prepared to capitalize on unexpected circumstances. Um, we can call it the Movimiento Semilla way. And then there's a clear uh, lesson for democratic oppositions in, in competitive authoritarian regimes in Latin America and elsewhere. And, and it's that you have to do the hard work, right? You have to prioritize organization and movement building based on principles, democracy, accountability, and transparency. 
you have to play the long game because you never know when when uh, authoritarians might make a mistake. You can't take any shortcuts, so you have to participate in every electoral contest that there is, even though you might be aware that it's unfair. Uh, and you don't have to play the odds uh, because non-democratic regimes uh, make mistakes all the time and you have to be prepared. Um, so mm. the way that the campaign worked, um, to go back to uh, David's question, is that, um, well, what, what we knew beforehand is that um, we had to replace this very unpopular right-wing government led by President Alejandro Jamate who in Guatemala was only constitutionally limited for one term. So that's why the international headlines read after the second round in August, like an anti-corruption candidate has swept mm -hmm. to a shot winning Guatemala's presidential election. So anti-corruption was at the heart of the campaign. Semilla's main offer was to tackle the deep-rooted clientelistic practices that serve as sort of the grease in the post-conflict state machinery in Guatemala. And so Arevalo's victory is seen widely as a repudiation of the political elite in this Central American nation, uh, which has been long the target of corruption allegations. Um, and going back to the party, right, it was founded in 2017. Um, and semilla, which is the Spanish word for seed, um, has roots in this anti-graft protest that rocked the country in 2015. Um, back then, the Attorney General and a UN-backed uh, anti-corruption commission revealed that there was a high-level graft going on involving the president and vice president at the time. Uh, Otto Pérez Molina was a military general, and Roxana Valdetti, who was very close with the bourgeois class, um, and who were uh, who willingly resigned and were arrested and put into prison. Um, so corruption and anti-corruption, this, this has been the heart of the campaign that proved to be very successful. Guatemala still ranks today very poorly in, in Transparency, Transparency International's Corruptions Perceptions Index. It's uh, 150 out of 180. So it's tied with Afghanistan and the Central African Republic. So that gives you a sort of a mm -hmm. ballpark figure of, of how good we are at being bad. Um, so recent years have seen a backlash to corruption investigations ever since the uh, anti-corruption commission that was backed by the United Nations was pushed away. Um, dozens of prosecutors and judges were forced into exile. Uh, land defenders are being systematically murdered because they are sort of deemed to be, you know, almost terrorists. Uh, journalists are being censored because they talk about um, these high level of corruption cases in government. Um, and, and through this context that seemed very gloomy and very dark, uh, Arevalo promised um, a reversal for this um, sort of systematic destruction of the justice system in Guatemala. Um, now the challenge is, of course, um, if and the question remains whether he will be able to assume office on uh, January 14th. Uh, if he is able to do so, uh, Semilla only has 23 out of 160 seats in Congress, so he'll have a minority party in, in, in the legislature, and he's going to have to uh, create uh, channels of dialogue and possibly reconcile with the people who were once his political adversaries.
Well, so, I mean, I, I definitely want to like focus a lot more on, on, on this challenge but before we get there. Um, I, I did just sort of want to pose this, this question to you because, you know, on, on this program and also on our previous work with like the Michael Brooks show, we've sort of watched, um, what's called like anti-corruption politics. And I've heard it described, you know, in a lot of cases as sort of being like anti-politics politics. And, and what that sort of means is that like, you know, well, everyone's against corruption. This is very famously like Bolsonaro's run against, um, against the PT. You know, it's like, oh, we got to get rid of the, these folks. And it's a way to sort of run on people's dissatisfaction with the status quo, but to not also have to sort of put up your own like vision of the world, your own vision of politics, or, or make those kind of promises that might get you into trouble later when people start asking what you've been doing when you win. Um, I'm just curious, you know, how you would maybe compare th th this campaign and movement to maybe some of those other kind of right wing populist anti corruption uh, movements that we've seen across, you know, the Americas and also in Europe. Yeah, totally. I think that's a totally fair question. And there's a lot of echoes with uh, the Brazilian right wing um, populists with what's currently going on in Guatemala, uh, you know, calling the election a fraudulent contest, um, trying to use the justice system to undermine the popular sovereignty. Um, so you're totally right. And corruption is this very um, ambiguous concept when it comes to actually carrying out policies. But uh, the difference with Semia is that since it's a new party and it's sort of, um, it came into being outside of the sort of the post-conflict party system configuration of uh, ex-military intelligence units, uh, um, historically landed classes with their own electoral vehicles. Um, it, it, it came into being in a, in, a, in a moment where mass mobilizations were taking root in Guatemala, and they were very intersectional. You saw um, indigenous groups, university students, uh, the professional class, all of, all of whom were very clear what corruption meant. And, and that is using public funds and extracting public funds from the state um, to for their own personal uh, use, right? Um, essentially using the state as their own private bank and extracting uh, funds that were used for um, public safety, education, and the health system um, for their own, and, and, and especially contracts, right? S state contracts, giving it to their own um, um, businesses. Uh, once Semia was able to articulate this to sort of make uh, the idea of corruption less ambiguous and more concrete. And people started realizing, yeah, Bernardo and the rest of the Semilla gang is, is kind of onto something, right? Why do we keep electing folks who never fulfill their, their campaign trail promises, but rather just emerge as these new nouveau riche um, politicians who are never really uh, able to uh, fulfill their, their promises, but rather just drive nice cars and have, you know, um, the ability to travel around the world and, and jet set from one place to the other. And at the same time, um, the country remains one of the poorest and most unequal in, in the world, right? Like it's not only corruption from a visible uh, perspective, but rather very practical. Um, we are unable, you know, to give you a very perhaps mundane perspective, um, we have one of the least connected uh, highway systems in, in, in Latin America. It's very hard to move around Guatemala and it's a very centralized country as well. We have 
very few cities, uh, the public um, health system is uh, collapsing. Uh, COVID was, you know, uh, a debacle in terms of how um, the country tried to respond to this emergency. And, and even that was um, a moment where um, the current administration of Alejandro Yamate um, negotiated with the Russians, uh, a very sketchy deal. Uh, we never got the vaccines. We used a lot of money and we don't know where it is. And, and that's why now uh, not only uh, people are very much aware of what corruption means, right? Like you are using uh, public funds for your private um, use. Um, and and they are clear that it's a configuration of folks, right? Like it's, it's not just politicians that are being elected, but the the remnants of the repressive state apparatus uh, after the 36 year civil war that we had in Guatemala uh, following that US back coup d'etat that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, so, you know, traditional elites have benefited from this. So when you talk about corruption nowadays, you're also talking about you know, business people who who are not only the bourgeois class but are the London uh, oligarchy. Um, so it's it's interesting to to hear this uh, debate kind of acquire a more concise um, um, component. Right, we're talking about people who are benefiting from being in in the government by becoming richer and richer. Yeah, um, let's uh, let's move now to this lawfare against Aravala, you know, because I think that kind of brings this full circle, right? The guy running on anti-corruption politics is nonetheless being uh, attacked uh, uh, sort of in a way that we saw Lula, um, kind of. I don't know if you would accept that comparison, but uh, yeah, what's been going on since Aravala won the election? So... Um... Many of us believe that what we're witnessing, um, unfortunately for Guatemala, the sort of the interim period between uh, when the election is over and before the president assumes office is very, very extensive. Um, the second round of the elections where Arevalo won was in August 20th. So we're still sort of in the midst of this turbulent time. Um, so we, we, many of us believe that there's a coup ongoing against it. Um, the coups in the past were an affair that happened uh, in two days, right? Like with a lot of power, you saw tanks in the street, um, and maybe you saw armies and the security forces trying to generate a change, uh, force to force a change in the government, ousting the people at the point of bayonets. Um, but in the 20th century, um, we had a, a good share of coups in Guatemala, particularly military-backed coups. Uh, but now, you know, we're in the 21st century and all over the world, coups are being conducted by, by lawfare. Um, I also understand that this might be a, a loaded term uh, because as in Brazil, uh, lawfare was, you know, used against Lula. Um, I agree with that. Um, so co-opted institutions are the ones that are carrying out uh, these, uh, the, the coup today. Justice institutions that then begin to be used as instruments to enact revenge. Um, and they're used non-objectively, non um, opportunistically, and sometimes even to the point of completely fabricating or falsifying evidence to try to attack somebody to gain the same effect that the old coups that used bayonets um, had, uh, which is to prevent the people that want to take office or getting elected to office in, in order to govern. 
So the results are the same. And that's why we believe that there's an ongoing coup or a slow motion coup, as Bernardo Arevalo himself called it. Uh, the means are different. Um, and But here in Guatemala, as it was in Brazil, uh, the means are judicial persecution. Um, in Guatemala, um, it is the Attorney General Consuelo Porras who has practically led the charge or the campaign against uh, President-elect Arevalo, um, who was democratically elected by a large majority in August, as we said, uh, from taking office. And up until that point, um, I must underline that the elections have been marked by irregularities, and that's why I called it uh, a free but unfair election. Uh, the Electoral Commission disqualified three popular candidates, um, including the front runner in the polls, who was Carlos Pineda, and the most important indigenous candidate as well, Telma Cabrera. So uh, um, thousands of Arevalo's supporters, um, you know, were a little confused as to why they got to the second round, but we must consider the context of, of you know, disqualifying a lot of the, of the, of the candidates that were polling really high. Um, so... When he made it to the second round is when problems started to pile up for Arevalo and Semilla. Um, authorities suspended his party and launched investigations into how it was uh, co constituted. They alleged that it was fraudulently, fraudulently constituted by forging signatures of the original constituents. Um, and from there, officials from the Attorney General's office uh, raided the headquarters of Guatemala's Electoral Commission on five different occasions. They actually took out the boxes, the ballot boxes, uh, which is completely unconstitutional and it's an affront to democracy. And, and they forcefully took election materials and everything was live streamed. Uh, so it kind of gives this odd feeling of, of, of like watching democracy fall in real time mm -hmm. on your your feed. Um, so that's why thousands of Arevalo supporters later um, took to the streets to demand that the attorney general step down. Um, so so again, um, these trends have continued to intensify as as time has uh, gone by. Um, in a Friday vote, for example, uh, last week, um, the Guatemala's ruling party-led Congress stripped four electoral judges accused of fraud um, of their immunity. So they're sort of uh, liable for a penal persecution now. Um, these four magistrates, uh, Irma Palencia, Ranulfo Rojas, Gabriel Aguilera, and Minor Franco, um, uh, left the country. Uh, out of fear of being, you know, wrongfully prosecuted. Um, and this has been confirmed by immigration authorities. So this move by Congress just recently, as last week, is seen as an attempt to appoint new judges who would oppose Arevalo's election. And is, is just the latest measure um, that could hinder the transition of power. Um, and of course, this, these moves have sparked international condemnation and, and nationwide protests. I'm curious, like, uh, who, who, um, who's spoken out internationally and, like, has Biden? Because I know Biden, with regards to the Lula and the Bolsonaro stuff, said, hey, uh, don't have the military intervene. And it strikes me as just, like, one important distinction between the uh, anti-corruption guys is, is there a solution to have the military come in and solve it, which is what Bolsonaro is and which is Arevalo's. But, yeah, what's, what's been that uh, reaction? 
Yeah, totally. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna f- flip the question a little bit there because I don't want mm-hmm. I don't want people to think that it's it's uh, old Joe Biden who's sort of carrying out uh, this defense of democracy uh, when in reality right. it is the Guatemalans who have been taken the the lead in defense of this electoral process. So as this anti-democratic mafia try to stage a judicial coup to block the president-elect from taking from office, it was a grassroots uprising that fought to defend the popular sovereignty of Guatemala. And this happened on October 2nd. And it, it was indigenous and campesino groups in Guatemala who launched an indefinite national strike. And this has been historic. Matt and David, I cannot even begin to express how, how massive and widespread these mobilizations were. Um, they were blocking traffic. They staged sit-ins. Uh, uh, to challenge the legal pressure, squeezing uh, this reformist president-elect. Um, and in Guatemala City, we saw dozens of Maya and Shinka community leaders who camped in front of the pro- public prosecutor's office. Until today, uh, it's been 57 days since they've been camping out in front of the public prosecutor's office, um, uh, where donations of uh, sandwiches, hot food, coffee, all the necessary supplies to sort of be able to resist um, began arriving on the first night. So it's it's almost been two months since this has been going on. And and over this first three weeks of what we are now calling the Paro Nacional Indefinido, the, nas- the indefinite national strike, um, the blockades on major roads um, reached over 140 points nationwide. Remember how I told you we had a very sort of um, faulty highway system? We essentially were able to stop the economy on its tracks. And this sent a resounding message to the political elites and also to the bourgeois class, right? Like, we are the majority of the people here. And we can decide when to take direct action, especially because this is a direct affront to the people's uh, political rights, right? Like, we we chose this man. We want this man to rule the country. Um, so you saw university students and faculty, healthcare workers, public school teachers, market vendors, various urban and rural civil society groups joining these the the, the call from the indigenous authorities at the barricades. Um, it was a beautiful beautiful thing to 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 um, to watch and to see um, happen. And and you know demonstrators have asserted that this is going to continue until the architects of what Arevalo is calling this slow motion coup, um, which is particularly the Attorney General Consuelo Porras and this special prosecutor against corruption, which is kind of ironic, it's called Rafael Curuchiche, until they step down. Um, So the strike has come after months of a growing trend of criminalization, um, the legal tactics that I mentioned, the institutional intimidation being used to suppress dissent um, during Guatemala's electoral cycle. Um, so um, the immediate uh, spark of the national strike came after the raids that we were talking about at the beginning, um, and where we saw that you know the public prosecutor's office officials were taking out um, the, box, the ballot boxes flanked by the police, uh, forcibly breaking into them and checking boat by boat to see where the fraud was. Um, and, and sort of the, these legal maneuvering 
which uh, enjoyed the protection of police and, and thus the collaboration of the executive branch, indicate that the state of Guatemala is unwilling to accept this change, right? Um, and I wanna, wanna emphasize once, once again, right? In case it's not clear, uh, the communities that led the call to mobilize uh, the strike uh, are in the Western highlands of the country, uh, the site of the historical Quiche resistance against state violence, which dates back to the colonial era. So the 48 cantones, the 48 cantons, is a municipal-wide assembly that serves as a centuries-old indigenous mayoralty, Alcaldía Indígena, in Totonicapán, which is this state in the, in the west of the country, uh, who were the ones that announced their actions first, and everyone heeded their call. Um, so after that, we saw the indigenous municipality of Sololá, which is also in the west, the parliament of the Xinka people, which is on the east part of the country, and six other ancestral organizations that represented indigenous peoples in, in Chichicastenango, which is in the central part of the country, Nevaj, which is in the north part of the country, and the Kichi territories, which is on the Caribbean part of Guatemala. So essentially, all of the indigenous communities um, and leadership amalgamated a unified antagonistic front against this authoritarian urge to steal the elections. Um, and this is the most widespread and persistent call to mobilize since the 2015 um, elections and the most significant social movement perhaps in the 21st century for Guatemala. Um, and in 2015, we saw a primarily urban movement uh, in the fight against corruption. Uh, but now, on the other hand, we're seeing a pro-democracy movement. Uh, and, and the national strike was born from the communities because they would no longer tolerate these types of uh, illegalities emanating from the state. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, when we're, we're familiar with the 1954 Guatemala, uh, the United Fruit Company, uh, CIA coup, and also the subsequent violence, I was curious how that context, historical lineage has played into this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the the right wing uh, of, of the Guatemalan political class, which is in support of the coup, funnily enough, is using the argument of foreign intervention to sort of push away uh, this idea that, you know, um, Arevalo will take office because he won the elections fair and square. Uh, so now it's being reversed, right? Like what happened in mm -hmm. 1954, uh, it's, uh, it's now sort of broadly understood as a U.S. intervention. But what's happening now for, for these sort of fascistoid conservatives are it's also understood as the U.S. is trying to uh, intervene here in Guatemala. So it's kind of ironic, right? Like it, it, it's it's only convenient insofar as it benefits our narrative of the events. Um, so what we see uh, on the other side of of, of of the resistance, right? Indigenous peoples uh, led uh, resistance. 1954 is served as that last glimmer of hope, right? Um, we had 10 years of democratic government, which is called the, the Guatemalan spring, the 10 years of spring. Um, and that's the last time where uh, the popular classes, uh, the masses, were able to um, actively participate in a nation-building project. And this is this is clear now, right? Uh, we cannot 
have a state or nation building project without the active participation of the indigenous peoples, of the Mayas, of the Xincas, of the Garifunas, uh, which are the majority of the population. Um, so it's curious and it's, and, and it's fascinating to see how constituencies who have been historically marginalized by the state are coming out to defend the little democracy that exists in Guatemala, um, which is, you know, inspiring. And, and that's why, going back to your original question, Matt, um, the eyes on the hemisphere are in Guatemala. And the fact that the OAS secretary, Luis Almagro, is leading the oversight that seeks to guarantee the change of command is a significant issue in, in regional terms. A situation like this has never occurred in the country because of the fear of corruption, impunity, and organized crime networks. Um, and, and that's that it is very relevant. Um, even the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights said that the move to to uh, inhabilitate um, the, the tribunal, the electoral tribunal magistrates and to um, stifle the, trans the peaceful transition of power uh, is uh, quote, quote, a long list of worrying actions against uh, Guatemala and is designed to undermine uh, the, the electoral process and rule of law. Now, the U.S. government has criticized moves uh, from Guatemala's attorney general and said um, uh, earlier last month in November that those who try to intervene with the presidential transition will, will face, quote unquote, consequences. Um, and that's and, and the U.S. has done, you know, what is at their disposition, right? They've uh, sanctioned um, Attorney General Porras. Um, she got um, she got she lost her visa. She can no longer go to Capitol Hill, for example. And there's a bunch of other uh, sort of government affiliated officials who have also lost their visa. More recently, um, just last week, the U.S. designated uh, Luis Miguel Martinez Morales, who was the former head of the now defunct Centro de Gobierno, uh, for engaging in corruption in Guatemala with the Global Magnitsky Act. Uh, with, for some of us who are familiar with that sort of diplomatic instrument, it sort of um, grants you with a financial death, right? Like you can no longer use the U.S. banking system. All the assets that you have in the U.S. are frozen. Um, and, and this is because Martinez um, engaged in bribery and corruption, allegedly, right, um, related to government contracts to benefit himself and close associates. And according to Washington, um, malign actors like Martinez, um, who many know, and, and this is not gossip, this is kind of like very well known. He's the, he's the outgoing President Alejandro Jamate's romantic partner. Um, have aimed to subvert the will of the Guatemalan people. Uh, so through the Global Magnitsky sanctions program, uh, the U.S. is imposing tangible uh, and significant consequences to discourage corrupt actors. It seems like this he might be the first person to get it, uh, Martinez, and this is the closest that you can get to the president without actually sanctioning the president. You know, like you, you sanction his boyfriend. Um, so... <laughs> In a way, the U.S. has been good, you know. Like it's it's it, the the scar remains from 1954, and I think especially progressives are never gonna forget about that because what came after were 200,000 
uh, deaths from mostly unarmed civilians. Um, but right now, um, they're doing the best that they can without necessarily using the weapons of war that they have at their disposal. So I don't want to be so cynical um, that I can't just maybe think that, oh, maybe, you know, some folks are doing a good thing. But I'm, I'm curious, like, when, you know, we hear about, you know, the, the U.S. administration or the OAS, um, you know, typically <laughs> when we're talking about the Americas, that usually yeah. is about to follow something really, really nice. I mean, like, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, why do you think there has been uh, such movement? I mean, is it just reflective of like, you know, certainly the social movements, um, but also maybe like a frustration with the, the way that Guatemala has been run? Um, in recent years, um, I'm, I'm curious your, your take on that. No, I'm, I'm also extremely cynical about that, David. I mean, the OAS and the U.S. government are, are, are no friends of mine. But in times like these, you need any any type of assistance that you can get. And unfortunately for us, uh, with what's going on in Gaza and what's going on in Ukraine, Guatemala is not really on the center stage for anyone's sort of foreign policy agenda. So to be getting this type of, of help um, is it's very important for us. Um, and, I, and, and, and again, right, like they have an ulterior motive to do this. Um, Arevalo is going to face an urgent humanitarian crisis at the beginning of his term. Guatemala has the largest population and economy in Central America, and the United States is the most important economic partner outside the isthmus. So it remains a major source of uh, and transit point for irregular migration and a thoroughfare for criminal groups and illicit merchandise. Guatemala has one in two children has chronic malnutrition. Sorry, my my pup is uh, oh, my, my pup my is having some thoughts about uh, me talking about uh, the U.S. in a good vein. Sorry. <laughs> um, and <over> <laughs> Guatemala uh, lives under the poverty line. So we're a deeply unequal country, as I said at the beginning. 20% of the GDP is derived from remittances sent from abroad, mostly from the U.S. So when you have a weakened rule of law and widespread corruption as exacerbating factors, um, and particularly the other factors are um, poverty and climate change, um, they are forcing increasing numbers of people to migrate to the U.S. and search for better uh, safety opportunities. Um, so while the Biden administration has sometimes hesitated to act decisively in, in terms of uh, Guatemala's democratic backsliding, it has played an essential role in, in this in election period, uh, speaking out to support the legitimacy of the first and second round results and condemning election interference. And their ulterior motive is to, uh, to stifle the sources of illegal migration. Guatemala, during the administration of Alejandro Yamatein, essentially became the southernmost point for the CBP, right? The Customs and Border Patrol have now uh, activities on, on the border of Guatemala. And, and many, many of us scholars um, who study these types of processes and dynamics believe that uh, the U.S. border now reaches um, Guatemala. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, right? Like the U.S., whether it's a uh, Democrat, Democrat or a Republican, they don't want illegal migrants coming over, especially poor Guatemalans who are going to put a burden on, on the social safety net. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is the reason why, right? Like right. we want a, a safe uh, 
working country in Central America so as to stop the illegal flow of migrants. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, wh one final question I have. Um, we sort of alluded to it, but uh, assuming uh, he gets into office in January, talk about the coalition uh, situation uh, and what he might be able to accomplish politically. Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough um, hill to climb for Arevalo. If if he gets to assume office on January fourteenth, um, as I said at the beginning, he has twenty three out of one hundred and sixty uh, seats in Congress, so he's going to have to negotiate with people that he formerly regarded as part of the corrupt class. So that's going to maybe um, sour some of his supporters, right? Like. Well, you said you were not one of them. So why are you sitting down with them and negotiating mm -hmm. for, you know, budgetary reasons or whatnot? Um, what, what is now clear and what, what is now very exciting because it, 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 it's, it is a turning point in Guatemalan politics is that he's going to have to negotiate with the indigenous authorities as well. They have now reasserted themselves as legitimate actors in, in Guatemala's political system and, and they have the ability. Right. Like they, they can stop the economy and its tracks whenever they want. Um, so they're going to be part of his coalition. And, and they're very clear about what they want, which is very exciting. Um, they are against uh, multinational extractivism, which I uh, which, which is one of the topics that I follow the most. They don't want um, international companies coming to their communities and, you know, depleting natural resources and leaving just big holes in the mountain and dirty air and water sources. They don't want um, corrupt uh, politicians extracting resources as well from the public administration. Um, so the way that Arevalo will be able to create a coalition goes through um, legitimating, again, the indigenous groups that have come out in his support. He needs to understand that it's not that the um, the 48 cantones, uh, the Quiche communities in the Western Highlands are coming out to support him. Rather, he is the embodiment of democracy at the moment. And it, it's democracy that they're trying to uh, defend. Um, so if he understands the historical uh, significance of what we just went through this past October in Guatemala and his role as his historical role as a mediator between the the old rotten political class and the downtrodden uh, popular masses that are um, mostly indigenous and Mayan and Garifuna and Xinka, um, I think he he might be able to to carry out good things, um, especially in terms of reform. I don't think it's going to be a revolutionary government like his father did in the 40s and 50s, but rather just you know making sure that the democratic backslide stops. Um, the biggest concern for me is that the attorney general remains, if, if she doesn't resign, right, which is not looking likely at the moment, uh, she will remain in office until 2026. Uh, so if you have the legislature and the judiciary against you, you only have the executive branch and ruling by decree in Guatemala is very, very hard. Um, so as I said, it's going to be an uphill climb because I am pretty mm -hmm. sure that Attorney General Porras will continue instrumentalizing uh, justice and persecuting those who are not 
um, aligned with the interest of the traditional ruling class in Guatemala. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Well, uh, Vaclav Masek Sanchez, uh, you can follow him at underscore V-A-C-L-A-V-M-A-S-E-K. Vaclav, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be, uh, be checking in with you in January to see how uh, hopefully uh, we uh, get this uh, into get our Arevalo into office and don't have uh, you know, a, a massive legal catastrophe on our hands. But thank you so much for all the information. Matt, David, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, no, it was uh, really great having him on um, and uh, in a pretty worrying situation. And, you know, I think um, it's something to be noted. I mean, looking at, at, at some of these different uh, coalitions in, in the role that you know, anti-corruption politics uh, plays. I mean, we'll certainly be watching what's happening in Guatemala closely on this program. Um, hopefully uh, this judicial uh, lawfare coup is unsuccessful. Um, but there's some really, really interesting and important dynamics there. So hope that y'all enjoyed that. Now, folks, what's up? We're going to go over the post game. As people know, Matt is off because he is celebrating his birthday, much deserved. Um, we're going to go off in the post game, and we are trying something new tonight, something that we haven't done before. I'm hoping that it works. Um, we're going to be doing a live voice call episode. So usually we do voicemails. This week we are going to do live voice calls. I will explain it again on, at the beginning of the post game, but I'll just say it really fast. You can get access to the, those vo voice calls uh, by one, becoming a patron. That's how you get access to the post game and all of our other bonus content. Again, you get two to one uh, content and you get the post game and you get the Sunday bonus episode. Um, if you sign up at patreon.com slash left reckoning, if you're already a, a patron, um, join up on the discord we have a link for you to be able to do that go into the voice channels and this uh, room is called the um, live voice uh, post game room and if you get in there we can have people call in we'll be able to play it on screen um, and be able to have a chat uh, just like we used to do on the michael brooks show so uh, please uh, come join us over there give me about five minutes and i'll post the post game link on patreon um, get into the voice chat room um, if you hang out there and just mute yourself, I'll be able to get to calls in an orderly fashion, just sort of go down, um, depending on when people show up. Uh, so please come and join us for that. Really hope, uh, you know, uh, you'll enjoy this episode and, uh, we'll see you this Sunday with a bonus episode we'll be back next Tuesday with left reckoning 148, um, uh, which is going to be a little bit of a, a big and emotional episode, but more on that later. Um, so see y'all in the post game, patreon.com slash left reckoning, get access Take care and uh, see y'all soon.